need connection, accountability, support as you explore the next level version of you, give yourself a real gift this year, the gift of time. The Warrior Women Mastermind is starting again in January, a curated group of six amazing women in a safe, collaborative setting. Think you don't have enough time? The money? Wrong. Ask yourself if you're worth three hours a month and $25 a day. The biggest discovery some of the women who sign up for my mastermind figure out is they have so much in common with other women and that they have traded their worth for a to-do list. Set up your interview call with me by going to lizswatek.com. That's L-I-Z-S-V-A-T-E-K.com. Space is limited and will sell out fast. Don't miss this opportunity to put yourself first. Women aren't born warriors. We become them. And the road to becoming a warrior is bumpy as hell. Each week, I'm interviewing women who, through tragedy and triumph, are leaping for greatness. Get ready to unleash your inner warrior. I'm Liz Swadek, and this is Conversations with Warrior Women. Hello, warriors. Today, we are going to dig deeper into the seeds of racism, systematically and individually. We are not only looking at the seeds, but the soil the environment. It's impossible to grow and be a society for all people if our soil is uninhabitable, poisoned. Is fear at the heart of racism? Is it in the soil? My guest today shares an interesting perspective of what it would really take to eradicate racism from sending an email to someone to our systems that we have in place and how they're run. She offers a window into what collective healing would look like. Racism is an ongoing problem, and we cannot take our foot off the gas if we truly want change. But do we? Do white people want change? Can the change start with us? Are we going to take that responsibility? Can we look at our role in white supremacy on even the smallest level and see our part? I think we can. My guest today has been in this work for many years and continues to offer a fresh perspective. DM us at Warrior Women Pod on Instagram and let us know what you think. Thank you for listening today. If you're curious about working with me or meeting an amazing tribe of warrior women in our membership group, go to lizswadek.com and schedule a call with me. Let's talk. Being an entrepreneur can be lonely. That's why I joined the Bra Network. That's the Business Relationships Alliance. Just like a good bra, the Bra Network lifts, gathers, and connects you to other like-minded entrepreneurial women with the knowledge that when we work together, we rise together. For me, the Bra Network provides the community, mentorship, collaboration, and empowerment I was looking for. From business, marketing, and finance courses to curated events to weekly Zoom meetups, the Bra Network works to advance women across the country. If you haven't joined, now's the time. Use your special code, WARRIOR, for your discount and join today at bra-network.com. That's bra-network.com. 
Today on the podcast, Dr. Rita Fierro. She is a visionary author, a racial healing consultant, community builder, and program evaluator who inspires and supports trailblazing leaders to birthing a more humane world. Her firm, Fierro Consulting, has increased the effectiveness of organizations internationally that are committed to reducing racism and sexism by helping them realign their internal cultures with their values and measure their results. In her latest book, Digging Up the Seeds of White Supremacy, Dr. Rita explores how exploitation and oppression have branched into persistent structures that are resistant to change. The book also addresses the extensive trauma that creates how we can transform the world through our personal and collective healing. In 2012, Dr. Rita partnered with similarly-minded activists to establish the Home for Good Coalition, Their goal is to help communities organize against racism that is embedded in our courts, our schools, and numerous other systems. Dr. Rita has studied racism and its effects for more than 30 years. She has a PhD in African studies from Temple University and a master's in sociology from the University of Rome, Italy, because she's Italian, baby. She's Italian. And Dr. Rita comes from a long line of traditional healers and in both Reiki and family systems constellation practitioner. Dr. Rita currently lives between Philadelphia and her ancestral home in Italy and travels extensively in her pursuit and wonder of healing herself and others. Wow, that is a great intro, I must say, that you just provided me. So thank you. Welcome to the show, Dr. Rita. Thank you for having me, Liz. It's an honor to be here. Let me say that this is the best in the world because we are connected on so many levels. So first of all, the other Dr. Fierro, that would be Serena, Came, She was one of my first top 10 podcast guests, and we talked about the confidence gap. That was one of my favorite podcasts with Dr. Serena. Your brother is Angelo Fiera, who everybody knows. Angelo Fierro at Compass is my absolute favorite real estate agent of all time. He's actually done ads on this podcast. He is my biggest supporter. If he was a woman, we would have him on, but he's a man, so he's not coming on. So he's <laughs> He edges in the ads and he's going to be so so thrilled. I didn't even tell him we were doing this today because I want to surprise him. So I'm so thrilled to have you personally and professionally. I I love everything you're doing. So I'm so excited to have you on, Dr. Rita. Liz, this is awesome. You know, the whole family. I know the whole family. Almost, almost. Shout out to Izzy. They're kids. Yes! Shout out to Iswal as we love her. My cuore di zia. Her auntie's heart. Oh, I love that so much. Okay, so... This is the first time we're meeting. I'm so excited. I love what you said. At 19, you decided that your life would be dedicated to fighting racism. At 19, I didn't even know what I was doing, Dr. Rita. So the fact that you (laughs) dedicated yourself at 19 to fighting racism is amazing to me. Tell me what brought you to that point at that young age. So first, I want to say that I was clear in retrospect, right? Like, I'm not exactly, there's some people, they're generally Capricorns, who know their whole life at the beginning of their life. And I'm still very jealous of those people. Like The way (laughs) you're saying it sounds like I was super clear and I wasn't. But in retrospect, I can look back on my life and say, okay, I see that you made the decision back then. I still am a person who has cultivated a lot of different interests. So I don't know that I was, that I knew that day that it was going to mark the rest of my life, but it earned, it ended up being that. 
So I was at a family function, as many other family functions, and I'm white, I'm Italian-American, and every time I heard racist speech at a family dinner, I was always impacted physically. So in this case, it was a person I really deeply admired that it had a really important role in my political identity. And they started like talking in a prejudicial and hateful way against in particular North Africans, right? So which at the time was where most Italian immigrants, most immigrants to Italy were coming from. So there was this kind of compilation of them having spent 24 hours in Morocco with their perception of Moroccans as immigrants. And it came out in how they were talking about them, like saying, you know, they're dirty and fill in the blank. I don't want to repeat most of it. Right. And I just felt physically ill. So I did what I usually did at that age and before, which was go to the bathroom. I don't remember if I actually puked over the toilet or if I felt as if I was about to. And I cried and just felt horrible about myself, felt like I was the black sheep of the family, not because that was humongously common in my family, but because I could feel that no one felt it in their bodies the way I felt. Like I felt alone and isolated because it made me physically ill. And I just, tears running down my eyes, mascara down to the bottom of my cheeks. I looked myself in the mirror and I, as a New Yorker, because I was also born a New Yorker, so I was raised in part of my life in Italy where there's a lot of kind of destiny. You can't do anything about it. But I was born a New Yorker. So as a very New Yorker that I was, I looked myself in the mirror and said, what are you going to do about it? Like, this hurts you. You can't expect the world to change from other people if other people don't feel what you feel. And so I just made a commitment to myself. I said, okay, we're going to do something about this because it hurts me. Mm. I, you know what I love about this is that I'm thinking of all the kids who are labeled oversensitive. Yes. And they may be over- I was one of those kids. Yeah, they may be- I cried over- a lot. I, fig- I figured. They may be oversensitive about something that we don't understand. Like, why, Rita, why are you getting so upset? This isn't even about you, right? Like, why are you yeah. crying and throwing up? Meanwhile, that's your inner- internal compass, right? That's your intuition telling you, oh my gosh, this is really important to me. And instead of turning it on yourself- And saying, what the fuck's wrong with me? Which you could have easily done. I'm sure you did in some ways. Oh, and I continue to do. Yeah. (laughs) That that voice didn't go away. Yeah. What's cool is you said, well, no, what am I going to do about it? Like, that's some radical personal responsibility right there. Yeah. But to the parents listening who have kids that are overly sensitive about a subject you don't think they should be sensitive about, just think that could be their career. That could be something. Because, for instance, my son's very sensitive about if people do drugs or vape or this loss of control, it bothers him deeply, deeply bothers him. Other people kind of going down a dark path. And now you're making me think about that. Like maybe he's going to prevent people from going on dark paths for a living. Interesting. So that's really, I think that's amazing that you had that revelation. Yeah, I would argue that's a soul yearning. And we're closer to that soul yearning as children than we are as grownups. 1,000%. So I moved on to become a program evaluator. I got a PhD in African-American studies, which was still aligned with me desiring a future as an anti-racist. Then I got into program evaluation and like for a while there, I got lost in the what do other people expect of me? And I, I never branded myself clearly as what, what I was most passionate about, which was differential of powers and shifting of institutions. And it's like now years later, 
that I'm actually in the world of business and being told over and over again, you know, your branding is your quirks. Your branding is what makes you unique. Your branding is what you most care about. Like, that's what the business world calls it. In the healing world, I would say it's a really profound soul yearning. It's what we came here to do. And as children, we know that, which is why in sync with what you're saying, I think different children are sensitive to different things. I love that. It's such a great point. In your book, Digging Up the Seeds of White Supremacy, you talk about how our personal fear reinforces the institutional and societal fears that actually contribute to social inequality and support racism. Let's talk about that because I think that's a hard thing to connect for people, how your personal fears could be contributing to the systemic racism that is everywhere. So I think two things on this front. One is that in the book, I use the analogy of a tree. And oftentimes we think about different systems like education, criminal justice, right, courts, school-to-prison pipeline, juvenile justice, health. We think of them as different systems. And I argue that's part of what keeps it all alive, is that we think of it as different systems instead of thinking of it as branches of the same tree. They all, when we look at them over 500 years, which is what I did in part in this book, is to look at 500 years across 10 different systems, there are patterns to how systems preserve themselves. So I argue it helps to think of them not as different systems, but as branches of the same tree. And so then the question is, what is the soil that's nurturing the tree? So you can kill a tree by cutting its branches one at a time, and if it's a 600, almost 600-year-old tree, it's going to take you a lot of time. Or you can change the composition of the soil, and you may change it in five minutes. You, may, you can kill a tree in five minutes by injecting something in the soil that doesn't nourish it. So I would argue that our personal fears are the nourishment of the whole system. I'll give you an example. Yeah, I would love an example, yes. Our legal system is designed to CYA, right? Like, cover our asses. When we're oh, in... like, uh, what's CYA? Okay, cover, CYA, cover our asses, right? Cover, so yeah, yeah. in work, in, if you've ever noticed, I'm thinking about like a typical work relationship, right? In the beginning, you may really vibe with someone, you may get really along well, and then everything's informal. Oh, we can just proceed. We're on the same... We think we're all in accord, so we move... The moment that that there's a misunderstanding looming, suddenly people proceed into CYA. So I'm going to put everything in writing. I'm going to put, I'm going to write all the emails and I'm going to cross, dot the I's and cross the T's. I'm going to date it. Right. Now the other person, yes. Now the other person perceives, oh, they no longer trust me. Therefore, I need to not trust them. And it escalates. Right. And we follow then the legal system, which is completely designed for your needs to be met at the expense of mine. A different way we could go about it is that if our relationship is actually profound and trusting and we don't let fear escalate it, we could actually just come back to the table and say, hey, I think there's a misunderstanding here. Can we try to clear it out before we proceed? And that conversation is often what we don't do. Yeah. Because we go into fear, and then fear strengthens the whole structure of the system, which is designed to support fear. So basically, with that, relationships don't get tended to, 
there's more separation between people because now we're in a country where we sue each other for, I mean, it's great that we have a legal system that actually works and where civil cases get resolved pretty quickly compared to other places. No, Italy. And it's great that we, like, it's a great notion of civility that our court cases get resolved fairly quickly. And in fact, what it does is it injects fear in every single relationship and it makes for a lot more court cases because things that could be resolved with simple love, connection, curiosity, and understanding often don't because they get escalated immediately to court. Yeah. So that's an example of how we actually strengthen the institutions that are designed to keep us in a state of fear Mm -hmm. of each other fear of ourselves, fear of our own power, and especially separated. Yeah. The last thing I'll say is that it also means that it perpetuates the fiction that for my needs to get met, your needs need to have not been met. That there has to be a winner every time. There's a winner and a loser. There's always a winner and a loser. Yeah. And Native societies weren't based on that. Native societies were based on the assumption that we always had to find a way for both of our needs to get met. And that often happened by tending to the land. Well, clearly we have fucking gone so far from that, Dr. Rita, that we've- We have. Back to that, because it's so- We absolutely have. Even in business, you know, there should be the win-win, right? So, but I, if I'm right, though, the correlation you're drawing to racism is that white people feel like, oh, if they're winning, if black people are winning, if people of color are winning, if they're winning contracts, if they're making money- if they're buying homes, if they're winning a legal case, that means a white person is losing. Yes, because we've been indoctrinated to believe that. Right. That what, And that's why we see all the backlash, in particular after the Obama win, right? Yeah. Because so, there's an implicit contract, in particular in the white middle class, that in order for the white middle class to prosper, they have to feel superior, not to any black men, but all black men and all black people. Yeah. And Obama broke that, Obama becoming president broke that agreement. So now because I feel inferior to one black man, I have to retaliate because it means I've lost everything. Mm. Because my identity as a white man or as a white person is contingent on black folk not having. So if they have more, it means I'm losing, to your point. This is interesting because I think that the political swing has also garnered more aggression and more unrest simply because it's become about that, right? Like Donald Trump will say, they're losers. People will, you know, vote, you know, go Brandon, all these things that they do, right? Where they're disparaging Democrats, liberal snowflake, all the things, right? And really making it about winning and losing versus how can we take care of our country? How can we take care of our people? How can we build the best system so that everybody wins? And I think the whole Trump campaign is based on, I know nobody's taking care of you. You're really scared that you're going to lose everything. I'm going to make sure you don't. Yes. And if you look in nature, 90% of species that survive over time survives because they have a collaborative versus a competitive nature. So we are, if you look at how that impacts nature, right? I'm going to get you to win. I don't care if coal is freaking destroying our environment. I'm going to get you win by win to go back by going back to coal. 
Yeah. Meanwhile, coal is going to destroy your home, my home, and all of our homes. But don't worry, in the short term, you'll win, right? Yeah. So there's a all the species that survive longest and in nature are the ones who have a collaborative framework, not a competitive one. You know, it's funny. I feel like women are coming around to this, and this is what's so funny, right? Like, I think for a long time, because men were against us getting ahead and making as much money and all the things we also were against each other. We ha- it was almost like fight club. Like we were just like all fighting each other, all these women, like, Oh, if she gets ahead, that means I'm not getting ahead. And if she makes money, it means I'm not making money. But yeah. more and more I'm seeing that women are coming together and because women are natural collaborators and really like to work with other people And I'm noticing, I'm watching these women make money together and, you know, refer people out and put money, you know, I I refer you, you refer me and keeping that flow going. And that's something I teach. I've had my membership group is based on that. All the things I teach are based on that. I believe in the power of a group. I believe in the power of a group to heal each other because you have that trauma usually happen with another person. So when you have that trauma healed in a group or with other people, it's so it feels so good because that's, it's almost like you're writing the wrongs, you know? Yes. So I think it's so interesting because I feel like women have really come around to this collaboration and knowing that at the end of the day, that is what is going to make us happy. That like the money, you know, all the trappings, all the externals, you can be a miserable ass person and have all those things. I could be driving a Porsche in my million dollar house and my kids in at Princeton. And I am a deeply miserable, unhappy person or I can know that my collaboration feels so good. It feels good to be with other people. It feels good to work with other people, to have people on my podcast, to go on their podcast, like have the flow go back and forth. That feels so delicious to me. The externals don't become as important because the intrinsics are so important. Yeah. Yeah. And I think as women, like through the feminist movement, most women who made it into power, into leadership positions, felt that they had to be men to lead. A hundred percent. And then it destroyed our family life because, of course, women who lead as men at home, if they were heterosexual, weren't really having a good time, right? Right. And so you have divorces on top of divorces, short family lives, and just lots of conflict. So there's all this life of, like, keeping it together at work and then feeling like crap at home. And I think as women, we're in this new phase of leadership where, one, we're super clear that leading as men is not going to get our earth out of where we are, right? Yep. And it's not going to get our, our life, our country or our world out of the mess we're in. Because one of the characteristics of women is the being able to bridge that left and right brain. So we always look expansively. Yes. Which is why in indigenous cultures, it was women, women made the decision about what needed to be led and then men led. Like women said, for instance, like this person, like I, I went into the house of five different people who are sick. That person needs rosemary. That person needs magnolia flowers. And that person, you, man, you want to go accomplish something? Go up on a mountain. And I need you to go on that mountain because that mountain has all three herbs that I need. Wow. Right. So it looked like the man was leading in many indigenous cultures because they were doing taking doing. actions. Right. Right. But oftentimes it was the women who were investing them of leadership. And so I think as we watched failed, I would say for the most part, failed in, I mean, succeeded in money wise, but I think failed in our higher desires and values to lead as women. We're now in this place of like, what does my leadership as a woman really look like? 
And do I have to fake being a man to be there? I don't want to do it because I realize in the personal life, there's too much, too big of a price to pay. And then it doesn't actually serve my world, which is the whole reason for my leadership. Because women tend to lead more desire to lead for the betterment of community or collectives. Yes. Than and personal they, power. And, they have, and their, right. with their sensitivities and with their intuition, yeah. which is a whole other skill set. Yeah. Right. And I think as men are making more and more decisions for us, i.e. Roe v. Wade and all the other things, the myriad of things, I, I'm watching as women are finally saying, oh, I guess I really do have to get involved. I guess I really do have to run for office. I guess I really do have to vote. If you're yeah. expecting these men to make the decisions for you, then I want you to be happy with whatever the hell decision is made. If you're not going to be, then it is on you to do your due diligence, to speak up, to be a community organizer, to run, to raise money, to donate money, all the things that men do already. So I'm very happy to see that women are waking up to that fact because this Roe v. Wade thing has been coming a long time. We're all shocked. Oh my God, what happened? It's like, no, that's been a slow burn that's been coming down for a long time. Um, they just got a little foothold on it and flipped it, right? But it, it's been coming a long time. So I think it's a good point to know that women have been leading collaboratively and, and, and in this way for a long time. It gives me hope, Dr. Rita. You talk about transforming societally and personally if we embrace love and connection versus fear. What does that look like, practically speaking? Like if we had to drill down into, like you kind of talked about it in the legal sense, but like on a... Like, how does a white woman such as myself, Dr. Rita, how am I dismantling, you know, white supremacy in Woodland Hills, California, for frick's sake? How, what am I doing, you know, and how can I be a part of the solution versus perpetuating the problem, I guess is what I'm really asking. So regenerative practice is an approach that kind of embodies all of this work. And regenerative practice has one basic principle that Human beings are the only product of nature that stop thinking like nature. And that's why our lives are unsustainable for the planet and ourselves, really, because we're driving our own selves to self-destruction besides trying to destroy nature, right? And in regenerative practice, there is a theory called three lines of work that basically says that when you are fully in integrity and are practicing fully in your personal it has to spill over in your interpersonal. And when you're fully living it in your interpersonal, it has to spill over at the next level, whether that's city for you or neighborhood, or we could take it a stretch further and say nationwide or worldwide. But it's the spillover effect, right? It's not, oh, now I'm gonna go do this outside. If we are fully loving connection in our personal lives, it expands to the group of people we belong to. So that can be our families, that can be the movements that we build, that can be our organization, the organizations we lead. And then the more of the organizations we lead that can come from a place of love and connection, the more our society will have to change. We'll just be an automatic. So here's an example of what it looks like. At the personal level, it literally is this granular, I know you're a coach, I am too, it's this granular detecting when we operate from love instead of fear. So in the case of the email that I was talking about, right, like suddenly I realize this person has an upper hand over me, right? So then I have to choose my next move. If I choose to write the nasty email or the cold email, 
Like I've been a master of that in the past, right? What I'm doing is I'm injecting fear in the relationship because I'm showing up as fear. Because our biggest power is who we show up as, right? So if I show up as fear, then I'm injecting fear in the relationship. And depending on the level of awareness of the other person, it's very likely that the other person is going to also show up as fear because we mirror each other all the time. And then if they one-up it, right? If they one-up it, if they show as show up as fear and pride, which is also fear, I would argue, then I'm going to one-up it, right? And then it escalates from there. Versus the option of like, hey, this relationship is really important to me. Sounds like we're leading down the tunnel of a misunderstanding. I don't really want to go down that route. You and I have had a really deep understanding, and I know what's important to you. I know you really care about relationship, and I really know you care about the common purpose we have. And let's try to work this through. And it's that love of self and of the other at the same time. So in our personal practice, it means being able to detect when we're coming from love and when we're coming from fear. Depending on your spiritual outlook, there's nothing else. It's either love or fear. And they can't coexist. And then... When we do that and we practice that and that muscle, just like a gym, right, becomes stronger because fear has a, it has a feel, has a vibration, has a feel. The more we practice the muscle of choosing love over fear, the more we can feel that vibration of fear. And the more we choose love over fear in our personal relationships, the more we can lead our organizations from it and we can show up in our families from it and we can show up in our movement buildings from it. A lot of our movement building is still fear-based, right? The planet's going to die. Act now. Yeah. Right? Right? We're all going to die. Act now. Right? I would argue that's actually supporting, nourishing the tree. Because as long as we're in a state of fear, that's not going to share. What we give attention to grows. So if we build stronger relationships and we build stronger communities and we have harder conversations the result of our society will have to change. So, and so I would say also choosing movement building and social justice strands that also aren't fostering that fear. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, I, fear is insidious. And, and I think what's hard about it is that fear is sneaky. <laughs> Very. <laughs> it's also biological. You can't just like whip it off and be like, it's gone. Yeah. You know? So what's hard about it is fear is sneaky. You know, it comes up in perfectionism and like some a million myriad of ways. Like you were saying, pride is also fear. Everything boils down to fear, right? And racism is fear, right? Fear of the other, fear of this person having more power than me, fear of this person taking what's mine or what is perceived to be mine. And white supremacy is built on this whole nice girl thing, right? To me, white supremacy is literally us trying to be superior. Yes. So it's fear not only that the other is going to harm me, but it's fear that I, if I cannot demonstrate my superiority as a white person, then I have no value. Because in our white families, performance and value were equated. In most white families, if you don't have the good job and the good car and the good house, and if you haven't performed your whiteness, you are either criticized constantly or dismissed. So there's a fear of not being valuable that is incorporated into racism. And that's our work. Like that's the work that black folk have nothing to do with when many well, black folks say, work, in my opinion. You, yeah, but when black folks say, right, you built racism, you fix it. 
I think that's that big chunk. Like we built a system where performance and value are equated while actually the dignity of human beings is unquestioned. We're valuable because we're alive. Life is sacred. Life is magical. Like we don't have to perform to be valuable, but we live in the fiction that we have to. Absolutely. And so then we need to put down other people to prove that we're valuable. We have to prove to ourselves that because we have the bigger car or the bigger house or more friends or the better job or the better social justice commitment, right? Because that becomes part of it too. It's all yeah. ego. Yeah. That we're better than and we acquire our value through feeling better than others. Mm. I love that. I love that you made that distinction. And that's fear. Yeah, that's all. it's all fear. Um, tell me about your mentors and your journey of healing and giving up your white saviorism. First of all, tell us what white saviorism is because someone pointed that out to me, I think like right after George Floyd, when I was like trying to get into my anti-racism work and I really, you know, had been like asleep and I was getting into this work and someone brought that thing up and I was like, oh, snap. This is like, <laughs> I was like, ah. Yeah. Um, tell me about that, how your mentors, your journey, giving up white saviorism and what you learned about yourself. So I would say that white saviorism, well, saviorism in general is this desire to save someone else because we believe they're in danger and we're the only people who can save them. And I would say that underneath that is a pretext of superiority. So all saviorism is based in superiority because the assumption is I can save you because I know better than you what's good for you. Right. I'm just like, I just had an image of someone who says to the friend, you're depressed. You need to get the hell up that up out of that couch. Right. And the friend says, no, I really want to set. I want to really want to stay still. Yeah. New studies on depression are saying that maybe depression is actually a way for people to pull out of the rat race for a minute and actually sense into what it is that they actually desire. Right. But we had to put this label depression because we had to make people sick and because our, in our society, we can only stop if we're sick. Right. God forbid we stop if we're not sick. Right. What's God wrong with stop because you? you want to. <laughs> exactly. Right. Because it's your desire to stop. So the assumption is that, you know, that we, I know better than someone else what's right for them. That's the backbone of saviorism is superiority. So my mentors have been in particular three black women who played a really important role for me because I had this big social justice like yearning at 19, right? So you can imagine by the time I hit 25 and I moved back to the States and I have a degree in sociology and I'm into African-American studies and I've discovered all the racism that has been instilled in me, I'm at this point like out for the transformation in myself, but especially out in the world. Like no one else should be born this way, right? Because I was raised in a predominantly white Bronx and very colorblind, very, I don't, you know, I don't see race, like all the things that we talk about in people who are not woke, right? I don't see race. All people are the same to me. I'm not a white person. I'm Italian. Like I said all of that stuff, right? And then when I start to wake up, I want to create a world where that's not a thing. And these women were amazing because they basically, each of them in their own way would just, they'd listen to me talk. And then I would because I'm Southern Italian, I would just get more passionate, right? Because I think, okay, it's not landing. So yeah, clearly I'm not louder. infusing enough passion in what I'm saying. I would just escalate and escalate. And then, and then, and then there's this injustice and that injustice, and I really want to change it. And they just sit there and stare at you <laughs> and make a face. 
And and one in particular reached out to me and said, Rita, I know what happens to my people. I want to know what is it about my people's pain that is hooking into your pain? And what is it that's unresolved in you that is having you resonate with us? Because you don't look like us and your story is not our story. What is it in you that's yearning to be healed through us? And can you look long enough in the mirror to find out what is it in you that's yearning to be healed? Because we find we don't need you. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And said, in particular, I'm fine. I don't need you. I don't need you to come save me. I'm fine. Yeah. And it forced me. I mean, this is why it's taken like 30 years for me to like really put a book out, really be as outspoken as I am on like podcasts or interviews. Because for 30 years, I really felt like I couldn't connect the dots between all the personal healing that was happening, which I took to because I deeply admired these women and I was, I was as fierce about my personal healing as I was about learning about racism. And so for a long time, these were like really two separate journeys. And then at some point they came together. But the prompt was, why do you care? Like you have to know what's the root of your own personal pain. But let me rephrase that. It's important for us to know what's the root of our own personal pain that has us go in empathy the way we go in empathy. Yeah. Right? So to the awakening of so many white women with George Floyd and a lot of black Folks said, why now? Like, this has been happening for a long time. Why now? Where and it's a been? great question. Where you been, white lady? Yeah, but the question, but we take it as an accusation and we deflect, right? And we withdraw. Right. But it's really a question, why now? Like, what is it in our personal stories that made that ticket, right? Yeah. What is it about the physicality of seeing George Floyd die? I, yeah, I was just going to say. Right? I, that resonates with physical yeah. abuse in our own families, perhaps? Yeah. Well, also, right? I think is it like, a lot of people had not seen it. When you see it, it's one thing you read it, hear about it. Oh, did that really happen? But when you saw it with your own eyes, and to me, there was no other answer except what I was seeing. No one, You couldn't give me a reason that was happening. You couldn't tell me a different story. I saw it. I knew what it was. And I said, holy shit, is this how we're living? Is this how we're living that somebody could put their knee on somebody's neck? I don't care what they did, frankly. I don't care what they did. That you could just sit there and watch a person die with your knee on their neck. I just was like, oh my gosh, we are here. I did not know where we were. And now, now of course, now I see all the other things. Now it was like that one thing let me see all the other things. But I'm glad we had that visual because I think a lot of white people did not, could not conceive that this was really a real thing. I agree with you. And I think we could still go deeper. Because some would argue that it's trauma that keeps us from empathizing. So if there hadn't been a trauma in any of our lives that had us from keeping from empathizing, we wouldn't have needed to see it. That's interesting. If your brother said to you, a cop had a knee on my neck for eight, eight minutes right? You wouldn't have needed to see it. You would have just believed them, believed him. I'm just making it up. I don't even know if you have a breath, right? You would have gone to bat. And Baldwin talks about this a lot. Baldwin says, the dilemma of white people is that we have to really come to the terms with whether we're really willing 
to be with our black brothers and sisters as brothers and sisters. Yeah. Because we aren't. We're disconnected. And so then we need all this proof. Right. But also, I still think there's something about the physicality of that that activated something. Yeah. I have an article that I wrote called Sexual Violence is the Backbone of White Supremacy. And it's based on a book written by Zora Neale Hurston, African-American woman writer, who makes, who basically enters the psychology of a white family and shows how sexual abuse intertwines with the construction of whiteness for this white woman. Abuse is part of how that fear is instilled in us as white folks. Yeah. And it's physical and sexual. Physical and sexual abuse don't depend on race or class. It happens equally in families of all social statuses and all colors. And so I would argue that in in white families, that's part of how that fear gets instilled in us. Because then we don't have a sense of security, and that's why we uphold the system. That's why we'll do anything in the world to keep the good job. Because we're trying to prove a sense of worth that was undermined through abuse. So then the physicality of it reminds, like it reminds me that neck could be my neck. Because yes. I know what it feels like to have somebody be on my intimidating. neck. Yeah. But yes. I also will say, Dr. Rita, that as a white person who was taught white history, I'm talking about I probably learned about two whole black people. <laughs> like mm-hmm. two. Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks. Course. The end. As a person who learned about two whole black people and really was not, you know, taught was taught white history, I was also taught white policeman equals safety. Policeman, person in uniform, white man, that is safety. So white man, police in uniform, they don't do that. They don't put their knee on the neck of a person. They're safety. They're who I run to if I have a problem. So that go went against my bra- my brain wiring, right? Yeah. So there was a part of me that felt that that had that, that that knew that thought police were safety until I saw that. And then I saw, oh, that's not that's apparently not what it is for everyone else or even maybe for me. Right. So it rose a cognitive distance for you and then you had to decide what to do about it. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. well, we are on to the speed round, Dr. Rita. So Uh get ready. What does it mean to you to be a warrior woman? I see myself as a warrior woman because I don't quit. I, when life tells me hints that I need to shift journey, I sh- may shift direction, but I don't quit. I've never given up on falling in love as many times as I've been heartbroken. I haven't given up on this bigger vision for humanity that we could organize our institutions based in love and connect- connection. And I live my life accordingly. I love it. What is a mantra or quote you live by? Just sempre tempo per un caffè. There's always time for coffee. It's oh, a saying so in southern Italy. It means you always find half hour for a friend. Oh, I love that. You always find half hour for a conversation and you always find half hour for a friend. I love it. What makes you feel unstoppable? My team. So I have Lots of self-doubt stuff that pops up a lot. And my team and people telling me, Rita, you should do this, is kind of where I get my energy. And then I pursue it because other people think I can do it. Yeah, they're good reflectors for you. That's awesome. What are you most proud of? (laughs) 
having reached a level of inner peace. I was a very troubled teenager, an extremely troubled child, and a very troubled soul for a long time. And I feel at peace with myself. I go to sleep every night feeling that I haven't harmed anyone, at least unintentionally. Of course, there are things that slip, but I'm human. But I go to sleep every night feeling like my karma's clean because I've done the best I can in every situation that I've walked. I love that. What keeps you going when you're feeling lost? The people I love, friends, family, kudos from friends and family, but also meditation and my inner voice. Like my inner voice told me to sit down and write that book for two years. And it was just like, just sit and write. So yeah, the people I love and my inner voice. I love that. What's exciting you the most right now? What's exciting me the most right now? I have two speaking engagements coming up. One in Philly, one in Atlanta in the fall. The one in Philly is October 16th. And there's possibly one coming in Orange County, California, which I'm like, I don't have a date for yet, but it's coming. It's at spiritual communities. So I'll be speaking on kind of bridging this shift of consciousness that I see, which is the living beyond fear with a deep understanding of systemic racism in spiritual communities that often dismiss the racism conversation. I'm excited because they're having me do a sermon. So I'm going to speak at it from a spiritual stance instead of an academic stance, which is my kind of default. That's super cool. I love that. All right. Well, you have to let me know if you come so I can see. I will. And easy too. Easy too. Okay, well, thank you, Dr. Rita, for coming on the show today. This has been amazing. And I'm really glad we got into this kind of deep conversation. I really love the gap you're bridging, like this whole spiritual and the love and connection as a dismantler for racism. I really, I think this is a great way to get more people to realize that this is what it really takes, right? Is understanding that that when you're walking in fear and living in fear, then you will, you know, you will fear everything and everyone that is going to take anything away from you. So I think this is a great bridge that you're building. Thank you. Can I ask you a question? Sure. Since you asked me that great question about practice, I'm just curious, what is something that you're walking away with that you feel like you can like apply in your life? Well, I think your tree thing with the soil was a great, I'm thinking about what am I injecting into the soil, right? In my own family and in, you know, all the communities that I serve, like what am I, what's in the soil? Not just what's in the tree and in the branches, but like what's in the soil, you know, what's at the root of things. So I'm thinking about that. That was something that I'm taking away today. Among a million other things, Dr. Rita, among a million other things, but that's just something that you have me considering today. Liz, it was a real honor, a real honor to be with you today. Thank you. I'm so glad that we did. I know we had some, like, we were just trying to get our timing down and our Pacific versus our East Coast timing, but we did it. (gasps) We did it. We We did it. it. All right, everybody. Thank you for joining me today. Remember to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star written review. This is the Conversations with Warrior Women podcast with me, Liz Swadek. And remember, every woman has a story. You just need to ask her. Bye, everyone.